This is Come and See by Father Ron Baird for February 27th, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 24 through 34. Once upon a time, there was a fish who lived in my garage, mounted on a board, because I would not let him in the house. His name was Billy, and he was a bass. For those of you who don't know Billy Bass, consider yourselves fortunate. This fish, if the switch was turned on, had a motion detector on it, and any time you would go by it, the first thing would happen would be the back fin would start flapping up and down. And then suddenly the fish would turn at you and start singing, Don't worry. Be happy. Which is really cute the first time. Somewhere after the tenth time, it gets terribly annoying. John wanted to know what happened to the fish one day, and I said, you know, I don't know. (laughs) The fish went away. I suspect he came to a bad end. Don't worry, be happy. A lot of people think that that's sort of what Jesus is saying in today's gospel lesson when he says, don't worry. You know, why do you worry about having enough to wear or enough to eat or enough to drink? And why are you worried about all of these things? And that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not some sort of pie in the sky of, of, you know, just sort of, lilting upon a cloud, don't worry, be happy. But he's really talking about what worry really does. Is anybody here good at not worrying? thought I'd ask it that way rather than the other way. But Yeah, how do you do it? Ignore things? <laughs> Ignorance is bliss, they say. Anybody else good at not worrying? The more you trust God, the less you worry. What do you do with all the problems? This is where we get in trouble, isn't it? If, uh, if, well, let me ask the other side of it first. How many of you do struggle with worrying? I just want to make you all feel better so you know you're in good company. It's kind of normal. Worry's a terrible thing. And the question is, is, well, how you know, how do you get from that place to where, well, I don't worry about things, I just ignore it. You know, we, we do know people like that. Most of us know someone who never worries about anything. They never have any money, they have a place to live. <laughs> they just don't plan at all, and they don't worry about anything, and, and they're constantly, you know, lost in the midst of things because they're not worrying. You know, we know people who don't worry because they they uh, find, you know, solace in alcohol, in relationships, in drugs, you know, because all those things can sort of anesthetize you so that you don't feel the worry anymore. And then some of us worry to an extent that's far beyond that, where we can't, we even worry about things we don't have any control over. You know, things that we can do absolutely nothing about, and we worry constantly. And, and, and it can get so bad 
that, that we can end up with a, a disease from it, that where we have what's called anxiety disorder, where, where we are so worried all the time and, and we don't even necessarily know what we're worried about. I mean, we're just worried. And, and it's not about anything in particular. It's just this overwhelming dread that can come over us. Well, so what is Jesus saying then about don't worry? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that, that I speak as something of an expert on the subject of worry. Um, I, I'm well accomplished in it. Um, when I was, oh, was I then? probably in my teen years, you know, 18, 17, 18, 20, I had spastic colitis. Does anybody know what spastic colitis is? That's where you worry so much that your, your colon goes, <laughs> seizes up. And you never really know quite when that's going to happen. And the pain is, is intense and horrible. I, I was taken to the hospital at least three different times, but they were positive I was having an appendix attack, only to find out that my appendix was fine. Um, and it also has a, a sort of um, unpleasant side effect, um, which causes you to need to go to a restroom really quickly. And I was a cashier at Kroger's. Do you know how hard it is to have that problem when you're standing there in a grocery line checking people out? Because you couldn't leave until you got someone to come and take your place. So do you think that added to my worry? Which only added to the problem. Now I'd like to say that 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 all was just totally resolved and everything was fine. Um, but I have to tell you a funny story. When I got my, when I was looking at my first call after my internship as a deacon, I was in Louisville, Kentucky. I'd been a deacon at Calvary Episcopal Church. And I'd been there for, oh, probably about nine months at that time, nine, ten months. And I was trying to find a position because that position ended, you know, at the end of June. I wouldn't have a job anymore. And so I kept trying to find a job. In the meantime, there were about five of us who had been ordained in the same class, and I watched every single one of them get a call. And I watched me not get a call. <laughs> and I began to wonder, you know, is anything, I mean, I don't, I don't think anything can happen. And I started worrying, what am I going to do if I don't get a job? How am I going to make it? I mean, I, I went to school, I did all this stuff. Well, what am I going to do? Nobody wants me. You know, this is awful. And I worried about it a lot. And one day I got a phone call from, um, I was shaving, actually. In the, I was in the middle of shaving. I had shaving cream on half of my face. I get this phone call, and it says, Ron? I said, yeah. And he said, this is Bishop Bob from West Virginia. Who in the heck is Bishop Bob from West Virginia? <laughs> Bob Atkinson called. I've got this great little parish in Point Pleasant, and it's perfect for you. I think you should go there. That was the beginning of the conversation. I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yep. I said, well, can you tell me a little bit about it? He said, well, it has a reputation for being a priest killer, but I don't believe any of that. <laughs> I didn't have anything to worry about, did I? <laughs> now, if you remember, I've said this a couple times in sermons, every time I would drive through West Virginia on my way home from seminary and, and for break, 
as I went in, I would always say, West by God, Virginia, because nobody else would live here. This is my... <laughs> so I said, well, could you tell me a little more about the place? He says, actually, I'm going to have the senior warden call you. He'll be calling you in a few minutes. So he hangs up the phone, and, and I get off the phone, and I say, you are kidding, right? I mean, this can't possibly get... I have no options, and this is what you're putting in front of me. And so uh, the senior warden called me, and uh, we talked for a little bit, and, and he told me how wonderful this little town was and how great all the people were, and, and then they wanted me to come up and, and interview. And so I said, okay, and we set up a date. In the meantime, they went out and made a videotape. They drove around town with a video camera all over the place. And um, Those of the people who were, how many people here were on the search committee that came down? If you're on search committee, you heard the story. Bill, you're the only one. Bill can tell you, these people are strange. <laughs> that doesn't have to do with being in West Virginia. They were just, they were good strange, but they weren't, they weren't bashful <laughs> about anything. I think Bill got more drinks that night at dinner than he'd ever had before. Because my personers kept going by sending us drinks. So I think they were trying to get me drunk so I'd do something stupid and wouldn't go. Um, because they knew that I was being interviewed. but um, So the day finally came, and I went, and I interviewed there, and, and, and I could tell they were really you know, putting the rush on me. You know, I felt like I'd met somebody and they wanted to get married. Well, in the meantime, on the way there, um, they insisted that I fly from Louisville, Kentucky, to, to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. <laughs> which means you fly from Louisville to Pittsburgh to Charleston. <laughs> and, and in the meantime, they lost my luggage. <laughs> and you have to drive an hour to Charleston to get, you know, to get to the airport to come back. So it was, a, it was kind of a fiasco all around anyway. So I get there, and um, I interview at the vestry and all. And then they say, we, you know, they'd arrange, they wanted me to do an evening prayer service for the congregation. So I agreed to do that. And it was evening, and I got up. And the minute I stood in the pulpit of this place, it was a gorgeous church, but the minute I stood there, the sun dipped just low enough in the sky that it came through the back stained glass windows, and what they said was this heavenly light shone upon me. What I remember was I couldn't see anything. <laughs> I was totally blind. And people came and said, we knew the minute we saw God's light shine on you that you were called to be our priest. And I'm like, well, I mean, <laughs> and so the senior warden says, well, the vestry and I'd like to get together and talk a little bit. Do you mind hanging out and talking with some people until we get done and we'll go to dinner? And I said, okay, but the one thing I want to add, do not issue a call tonight, please, because I could tell where this was going real fast. Oh, okay, okay. So he was gone for about 10 minutes, comes back and says, we've all voted unanimously. We want you to be our priest. <laughs> Oh, jeez. I said, I don't, I don't know. I said, you know, I just got here. I said, can I have a couple of days to think about it? And, you know, I need to talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, take time. So I go back home. Finally got my luggage back. Um, it did get back to Louisville, thank goodness. So I'm back home, and I go see the bishop. I say, Bishop, I really don't know what to do. I said, I've been offered this call in West Virginia. And I've never lived in a small town. This town had about 5,000 people in it. 
Now, I'd lived in Louisville, Kentucky, which was close to a million, and Washington, D.C., which at that point was at about four million. <laughs> this had five thousand. I said, I don't even know if I could do that. And, and he said, well, what did you think of the people in the church? I said, well, they're very loving. They're wonderful people, but I don't know if I can do that. You know, what do you think? And he said, well, I'm going to make your decision harder. I'm going to offer you a call to um, St. Andrews in Glasgow, Kentucky, as their vicar. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, well, they, they're going to need a vicar, and, and I, I found somebody in Dawson Budget. We're going to help them out, and, and I think that you might be able to help turn that church around. <laughs> and so I said, well, thanks. So now I have to tell Point Pleasant <laughs> that I, well, I, I need a little time, um, but it won't take too long. So I call them up, I go down there, and I interview them. And in the meantime, one of the things you have to know is that the Diocese of Kentucky paid for my entire seminary education. So there, there was some moral requirement upon me to serve in Kentucky. And I went down there and I interviewed with the vestry there and, and I said, well, and, and you know, they, they got everybody together for a service. All the 12 people showed up. Um, I said, so what are you looking for in a priest? We want somebody to take over running this church because we're exhausted. We need somebody who's going to go out and bring people in. <laughs> and the more I heard about this, the more it sounded like I was going to be the one. And so conversation turned. I said, well, tell me, what do you do for fun, you know, in Glasgow? And they said, are you kidding me? I said, no. I said, well, for fun, we go to Nashville or Louisville. <laughs> I keep thinking, wow. So I left there thinking, this is a disaster. The bishop has offered me this position in Kentucky, and they paid for my education. I've got this place I could go, and both of these are small towns, although Glasgow had 12,000 people in it, so it was much bigger. Um, <laughs> um, and, and this point, but it's a tiny little town, and it's, bless my God, Virginia. <laughs> Nobody lives there but God. And I didn't know what to do. So I had a week to make up my mind. And I'm driving to work on Tuesday morning, and I'm just, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I don't know what to do. What do I do? What's the right thing to do? I feel like I ought to go to a, I don't know what to do. No, I can't do that. You know, and no matter what, I'd get to one side, and then I'd say, no, I got to do the other side. You know, and I get to that side, and I go, no, I got to do this. And I get to this side, and I know I got to do this. Oh, gee. You know, it was so bad that um, it was about a half an hour drive from my house because the church was in town in Louisville that spastic colitis struck again while I was driving. There's no bathroom in my car. I did something that no grown man ought to do <laughs> in their car. <laughs> I had to turn around, go all the way home, take a shower, change clothes, and then go back to work. Well, when I got there, the rector was there, and he said, kind of late, aren't you? Now, this is an unusual place because it was a 9 to 5 church, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. It was downtown. Nobody went downtown any other time. And I said, yeah, and I told him what happened. I said, Ben, I just don't know what to do. Can you help me? I need help. I can't figure out what to do. What do I do? I'm afraid I'm going to make the wrong decision. He said, there isn't a wrong decision. Just decide. What do you mean there isn't a wrong decision? Just decide. He said, just decide. God will be with you. 
And I was thinking, thanks a lot. <laughs> that didn't mean no good whatsoever. And so I kept praying, and I finally decided, well, God, you need to just tell me what to do, because I do not know what to do. And that Sunday, um, Ben, we were doing services, and Ben lifted up the host, and he broke the bread, and said, Hallelujah, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And suddenly, I knew that I was supposed to go to West Virginia. And it was the most interesting thing, because the minute I knew that, it was, it was like somebody turned on a switch. And I just knew. And there was no more worry. There was no more anxiety. I never thought any more about it being the place where only God lives. Um, didn't worry about it being a small town. And I went there, and I had a very good six years. I mean, I, I, it was a great congregation. What's an amazing about the story is that it was something I had struggled with all my life. And by this time, I'm 32 years old. And, and it was horrendous for me to be paralyzed with indecision, afraid I was going to do the wrong thing. And my dad had sat down and talked to me as an adult, and he said, Ron, you know, you need to quit doing this. You're going to drive yourself crazy doing this. And I said, well, Dad, that, that's all good and well. How, how do you do that? And he said, well, I can tell you what happened to me. I used to have ulcers all the time, bleeding ulcers, because I worried all the time. And you don't see me having bleeding ulcers anymore, do you? And I said, no. Well, what did you do? He said, I quit. I said, you quit what? He said, I quit worrying. What do you mean you quit worrying? He said, I quit worrying. I just, just said, I'm not doing that anymore. Because that's the secret. Did you all know that? The secret to resolving worry is don't. That's it. And you know what else? It works. It's amazing. It really does work when you let it go. Now, it's not a blind letting it go, a pie in the sky of, well, whatever comes will come, and God's going to take care of me, and all I have to do is sit here and wait for my million dollars to fall on me or whatever. You know, jobs will, you know, the employers will come knock on my door, <laughs> those things. It's the kind of thing that Jesus was talking about when he said, let today's worries be enough for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own. Now, what he was really saying in this is that when you have a problem, when you have things that you don't know what to do, what you do is stop trying to decide what the right thing to do is. Because you can't know. Instead, what you decide is, what can I do? What am I able to do? What sorts of things could I do to make a difference in this situation? And then you do those things. And a lot of times when I'm talking with people, we have this conversation, well, I've done all that. It didn't work. I said, well, then it sounds like you've done all you could. Well, what should I do now? I said, don't worry about it. <laughs> and they say, well, but it's not solved yet. And I said, no, but there's not anything you can do. So don't worry about it. Put it in God's hands. Now Jesus puts another thing in front of this. 
that will help us with the don't worry part. And what he says is, seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And then all of those things that you're worrying about will work themselves out. Well, what does that look like to seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness? Well, there are two parts of that, aren't there? There's kingdom and there's righteousness. Kingdom means what? So if God's sovereign, what does that mean? Oh, (laughs) seek first God's being in charge of your problem, not you. You got a kid that isn't acting right, is getting bad grades, you're trying to figure out what to do. The first step is to realize that the child belongs to God, not you. You're there to help. And put God in charge. And say, what do you want me to do? Now, that's not a passive response, by the way, because to put God in charge also means to put God in charge of you. And to do those things that God is calling you to do. And God doesn't usually run out of things for us to do. A lot of them we don't like to do, but doesn't seem to have a hard time finding things to do. And, and so what he says is, I will be in charge. I will tell you what steps to take. Don't second guess me. Have you ever tried to teach anybody anything at work or something where they, they want to jump to the end? And you're like, but you have to, well, it'd be a lot quicker if we didn't do all this stuff. No, 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 that's not going to work. <laughs> I mean, if you skip all this stuff, you're going to end up with all these problems. And, and they, they're going, ah, oh, that's a waste of time. And you're thinking, that's not a waste of time, it's important. <laughs> that's what God is like. He's going to say, do this step first. And, and a big part of our problem is that God isn't a time fanatic. Did you all know Jesus did not wear a watch? Shocking, isn't it? Makes you wonder how he got the 11 o'clock service started on time, doesn't it? There was no watch. How did anybody know? That wasn't always very accurate. It changed with the season. I mean, he just kind of showed up and did it whenever. God has eternity. He didn't worry about what minute it is. What he does is make sure that things happen in a way that the results will end up being what they were supposed to be. And all too often, that doesn't look like our time because we want immediate results because we don't live in eternity, do we? And so ultimately, if you want to get past worry, a big part of of that ability to move beyond it is faith, is to make a conscious decision that I really do believe that God's in charge. I really do believe he can handle it. I really do believe he can pull it off. And what I need to do is to do what he tells me to do in the moment. And that's what Jesus says. And he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Leave tomorrow's trouble for tomorrow. You have enough worries for today. What he's really saying to us there is deal with what God puts in front of you now. And tomorrow will come. If you take care of the steps in between, all these things will be added to you as well. And so if we want to let go of worrying, the first step is to let God be in charge. And the second step 
is to find out what he wants us to do in the meantime. Tell me what I can do. And it's an amazingly liberating experience because when you do that, what you find is that your life becomes a pattern of you look at a situation, you pray about it, you say, Lord, you know, this is all yours. What, what, what should I do? And then you look at all the things and say, well, here's what I can do. Here's what the Lord wants me to do. And you can do it because the Lord isn't going to give you more to do in that moment than you're capable of doing. You know, those steps will be things that you actually can do. It's only when you look at what may happen in the outcome and you try to jump to the end that you start getting into trouble. But if you can slow the whole process down, say, Lord, what do I do now? Then suddenly you find that you can do it. And what's amazing about it is that if you will do that, give it to God, then do what he tells you to do with it, what you will find over and over and over again, if you keep repeating those steps, is all of a sudden all these things are added to you. It's amazing. You know, when I swore I'd never live in West Virginia, I didn't know that I would love people there. I didn't know I'd meet my wonderful wife because I went there. I didn't know I'd have a son like John because I went there. Had no idea. Couldn't have planned it. But I decided to let God plan it instead. And every time that I tried to take a step back and be in charge of it, it doesn't work very well. So the first step is surrender to God. Say, Lord, you're in charge. What do I? And the second step is, now, what do I do with it? And the amazing part about it is, is the peace that comes with it. A lot of times, you know, through the traumas that we've gone through over the years, and if you've been here, as long as I've been here now, you know, we've been through a lot of different things, you know, deaths and, you know, separations and all kinds of stuff. But a lot of people say, you always seem peaceful. I mean, you don't seem to let it get to you. How do you do that? And I say, well, it's not mine. It belongs to God. And I truly believe that he will tell me what to do and that he will work it out. If you weren't here when we moved, when we were going to have to move out of the old building, people were going, where are we going to go? You remember what my answer was? No, it wasn't that profound. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He hadn't told me yet. And I said, well, how are we going to make it? I don't know. <laughs> well, what are we going to do? We're going to wait for the Lord to tell us. <laughs> we're just going to wait. I said, well, until he tells us, and then we're going to do that. Look where we are, and look what happened. Couldn't have planned it but it works all because I decided that I wasn't in charge. And so when you have to make hard decisions, when you have to be in that position where you, you, know, you have to make those difficult decisions and they're worrisome to you, the real trick to it is don't make the decision. Let God make the decision. And then do your best, do what he tells you to do. And it's amazing how ultimately things will work out. And as that happens in your life over and over and over again, it builds your faith because you can see the results. You see what has happened because you did it. And each time it gets a little easier. Each time it, it seems to be a bit less of a strain. But there's a key in that that comes in today's epistle that, that we all too often miss. You remember Paul was talking about that none of you have a right to judge me? And he said, yeah, I don't even judge myself. 
Who judges us? God. What, what he's saying is, play to an audience of one. Don't worry about the world. Because they're created just like you are. And they're fallible just like you are. Worry about what the Lord wants. Hand the sovereignty back to him. Because if I will do what God wants me to do and take the steps God wants me to take, even when I don't get it quite right, God will tell me the next step. Wouldn't we do the same for someone if we were trying to help them learn how to do something and they didn't do it quite right? Wouldn't we help them to correct it and move in the right direction? Why would God do anything less? And the problem in the world with anxiety and worry isn't so much that that God isn't taking care of everything. It's that we don't let him take care of everything. We take care of it. It's like a bunch of two-year-olds running the house. Can you imagine what that would be like? That would be frightening, wouldn't it? You know, the two-year-olds decide what we're doing for vacation. The two-year-olds decide what we're having to eat today. The two-year-olds decide what we're going to buy at the store. (laughs) Can you imagine? But every time that we take control of our life, are we doing anything different? Aren't we really saying... I don't need you. I can handle it. And then we wonder, how did everything get so messed up? Key is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to seek his control over your life and to do that which he gives you to do. And then all the other things will be given to you. Include, I want to point out to you, the most successful treatment program for anybody with any kind of addiction is the 12-step program. Anybody know what the first step of alcohol, we'll use alcohol, alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous is? Nope. The first step is to, to admit that you're powerless over it. You don't have any control over whether or not you drink. That's the, that's the first step, is that I'm not in charge. You know what the second step is? I don't have any AA people here I can tell. (laughs) The second step is to acknowledge that there's a higher power, God, Jesus, who can control it and give it to him and let him. And then all the other steps are the things that you do that flow out of that, of doing what God gives us to do. Now, isn't it a shame that we leave it until we have an addiction till we start doing that? Imagine if you did that with your careers, with your raising of your kids, with, you know, your kids aren't doing well in school or your spouse isn't, you know, things aren't going well at home or, or you've got an illness or whatever those things are. That can weigh you down so much. Imagine if you said, well, I'm powerless over it. It is what it is. And I give it to you, Lord. What what do I do now? You won't be passive. You won't live in la-la land. It won't be, don't worry, be happy. What it will be is, Lord, you're in charge. Tell me what to do. And I've never, ever found that the Lord is lacking in things for us to do. Ever. You always find something. And the question is, is are we willing to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Because if we don't, 
all those other things, we will only get temporarily. And then they will all be gone. But if we do, they will last forever. Amen. You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to Come and See.